Handling a lot of customer emails can often feel like you are defending King's Landing from the Dothraki horde. But customer service doesn't have to be that hard. HelpSpot lets you organize, manage, and report against your customer emails while providing customers with easy-to-use self-service tools. This week's episode is sponsored by HelpSpot, and you can use HelpSpot for free for up to three people or buy it for larger teams and get 10% off forever with the offer code KINGS at HelpSpot.com slash KINGS. That's a lifetime of 10% off, especially for Cast of Kings listeners, with the offer code KINGS at HelpSpot.com slash KINGS. Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen, and I haven't read most of the books in George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson. I've read every book in George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. What we do here on this podcast is we recap every episode of Game of Thrones. We'll spoil everything through this week's episode, uh, but we won't spoil anything from future week's episodes. That includes anything on the next time on Preview. It also includes anything that can be found in the books that hasn't been covered yet on the show. Find more episodes of this podcast at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. You can always email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. Uh, or you can always uh, leave a comment on our Facebook page as well. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash acastofkings. Finally, one last thing. If you are a fan of this podcast, we would ask you to just uh, leave a review for us at iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, helps people find us. And uh, there are a lot of people who find the show through iTunes. So, uh, yeah, leave a review for us. Uh, we'd be ever so grateful. Let's dive into this week's episode, Joanna. Actually, no, before we do any of that, we got to talk about last week and a bunch of follow-up from last week. Uh, the biggest thing uh, that I think is worth mentioning here is uh, what happened with Hodor on last week's episode. We had speculations that I think were pretty strong, but apparently uh, I, I think we were wrong. I don't think we actually said uh, what at least Christian Nairn, who plays Hodor, what his version of events was. He gave an interview to the New York Times, uh, and uh, I'm just going to read here from this interview, quote, uh, the question was, did the fact that Bran was responsible for not only his death, but also his simple-mindedness, change your idea about the nature of their relationship? And again, Christian Nairn, who plays Hodor, responded, no, it doesn't. Although Bran was responsible for the whole chain of events that killed Hodor, Hodor didn't have to hold that door. He wasn't being warged into at that stage. It was Mira who asked him to hold the door. It wasn't Bran. He wants to protect the little guy. That's all he's ever done. He wants to help. This is the ultimate helping hand here. I just think he would be happy they could continue without him, end quote. So uh, that is Christian Nairn's uh, understanding of the Hodor scene. Uh, and yeah, so I'll just say, you know, Joanna, I missed this. You know, I, I, I think it was more appealing to me from a storytelling perspective if Bran was somehow responsible directly for uh, Hodor being the way he was. But um, yeah, what did you think of uh, Christian Nairn's comments here? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's it's revealing, and I, and I like that interpretation more because if you've rewatched, if you've had the heart to rewatch the scene, uh, he's definitely not making "I'm being controlled" faces. He right. seems to be making like "I am Hodor and I am doing this" faces. So that interpretation, I think, stacks up with the performance he gave um, on screen for totally, sure. Totally. Um, so hopefully that helps answer some questions uh, about. 
what exactly is going on with Hodor and Hold the Door last week. Uh, we got a few questions about, like, what was Mira's plan exactly? Dragging Bran, Bran out into the middle of the wintry wilderness. Of course, we got an answer to that question this week. Uh, a bunch of emails, a surprising number of emails, Joanna, contesting our ruling in Spoiler Court last week. That's true, yes. We uh, got a lot. So, to recap, last week uh, on A Cast of Kings, we had talked about whether or not saying the phrase, hold the door... To your friends, before they had a chance to watch that episode of Game of Thrones, was a spoiler. And both Joanna and I ruled not guilty in spoiler court that it was too vague uh, to be guilty uh, and to be a spoiler. And a lot of you didn't agree with that. A lot of people uh, didn't think so. Joanna, have the voluminous emails we've received about this caused you to reconsider your position on this? I guess I do in terms... Like trying to consider the context, okay? If this guy just tweeted "Hold the door" out into the universe, which is kind of the mindset that I I was thinking about, I don't think that's a spoiler. But I have experienced, uh, you know, living on the West Coast as we do, we're often behind on television, and I used to have Facebook friends who would try to vaguely talk about an episode to me before I watched it. And I'm just like, I guess my real question is, and you asked this last week, why? Like, mm-hmm. why <laughs> are you trying to talk to me about this? You're just putting your fingerprints, smudging your fingerprints all over how I'm going to digest this piece of uh, media. So even if you're not trying to actively spoil, you're planting little seeds that my mind is going to be, you know, looking for as I watch. So I think maybe this guy who's talking about, I don't know, Star Wars and, and whatever to a, a group text Maybe that's not the right context to get your, like, I don't know, um, spoiler Tourette's out. Maybe, t- like, tweet it into the void. Yeah, and that consider, might be uh, consider going to a canyon and screaming it for no one. <laughs> yeah. That would probably be a better idea. Uh, I- I'm still holding strong, but I agree. It is kind of a just uh, questionable move. Like, why are you doing – what do you hope to gain from it, basically? Especially if it's a group text to your friends, you know? So, uh, all right. A couple of other emails here. JC from Malden, Massachusetts writes in, Dear David and Joanna, uh, two things. First, in reference to the idea that Bran and the Three-Eyed Raven are one and the same, Jojen Reed explicitly said so at the beginning of Episode 2, Season 3. Bran is shooting arrows at the Three-Eyed Raven, and Jojen tells him, You can't kill it, you know. When Bran asks why not, he answers, Because the Raven is you. Uh, second, I think I can answer Arya's question of who wants Lady Crane dead. In episode three of this season, Cersei tells Kyburn that she wants to know about anyone who's making fun of her, who they are and where they are. Lady Crane is portraying her in a play. I believe if Arya kills Lady Crane, it will be at Cersei's behest. So two uh, theories about what we saw in last week's episode. John Robinson, what do you think of the idea that uh, Bran is the Three-Eyed Raven? I think this is a, a common theory that's been going around, right? Yeah, I mean, there's two questions. Is Bran the – there's the role, the title of Three-Eyed Raven, yeah. and then there's, like, the flesh and bone person. Like, is he actually is the guy? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I actually – I believe wholeheartedly the first one. We got confirmation of that in this episode uh, when, when Benjen basically said, you are the Three-Eyed Raven. And I went back and rewatched that scene uh, that the listener mentioned in the email when they sent that in last week. It's a dream that Bran's having in season three because he's standing around walking. Um, and I think it's meant to be metaphorical, like you are the Raven sort of metaphorically. Um, that being said, part of me really wants Bran – to wind up being Max von Sydow 
only because I like the movie Looper and I like the idea that he sort of like watched his own death already happen uh, and the series ends with him sort of climbing into the tree and we know what happens then. You know, right. like some yeah. some weird sort of timey-wimey loop thing. Uh, I wouldn't mind. But I think the more likely explanation is that he is, uh, you know, symbolically the raven. I think timey-wimey loop is the technical term there. So <laughs> good job on coining that. Uh, oh, no, that's a, that's a Doctor Who thing. Oh, okay, gotcha. I, I'd never heard that before. <laughs> but uh, thank you for the education. Warren writes in to castofkings at gmail.com. Warren writes in uh, explaining some of the stuff we've been seeing with regards to the Nameless Assassins. Uh, So Warren predicts, A, the Nameless Assassins formed Bravos and thus are likely deeply connected to the bank. I expect this is going to pay off big time later on. And B, they establish that there's never been royalty in their order. This is clearly why the Waif hates Arya and also sets up why Arya ultimately won't work out. They end the sequence by pointing out that Arya just doesn't understand how to be a servant. She asks questions because she's royalty. Uh, end quote. So uh, that email was actually written six days ago. So it was written before we found out what happened to Arya today. So good job on calling that, Warren. I don't know if that was in the book, Joanna. But, um... Well, I mean, I think there's some indication that actually the waif is from a noble house of Westeros. Mm. Uh, yeah, she's the only child of an ancient noble house, or at least in the books. I don't know if that's true in the show. Um, so the the classism doesn't entirely make sense in that context, even though she says so in the episode. Um, yeah, and I don't know. Are we calling the Starks royalty? I guess they're declaring themselves <laughs> kings of the north now. But she's just, yeah, she's certainly a noble, that's for sure. Yeah, and um. I don't know that that's what's getting in the way of her being an assassin. I feel like it's a sense of honor and right and wrong that she inherited from her father that's mm. getting in the way. So That makes sense. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that today. Uh, I actually also uh, got a couple emails about uh, Arya being forced to potentially kill a Stark, which I thought was pretty interesting. Like that, that was where this whole plot line is going. And if it didn't go there, then what would this whole thing be for? Good question. Uh, let's talk about that more later today when we talk about Arya's plotline. Uh, Henry Medeiros in the chat room, we're broadcasting live right now, uh, says, Bran is crippled and the three-eyed raven never walks either. Hmm. Mm. I don't think we ever see Max von Sydow walk in the real world, right? So No, he just sits in that tree. Yeah, <laughs> that's all he does. Uh, he walks in the flashbacks when they're warging or time traveling or whatever you want to call that. But uh, Right. Yeah. Anyway, all right, uh, so that's all for feedback and follow-up. Do keep those emails flowing into acastofkings at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash acastofkings. Let's get into this week's episode entitled Blood of My Blood, Season 6, Episode 6. This episode begins with Bran and Mira running through the woods, picking up right after the last episode left off. Uh, and Bran is still downloading the history of Westeros, receiving all these visions and a lot of uh, uh, flashes of images. And I think you broke these down in a post for VanityFair.com, right, Joanna? Anything interesting here that we might not have caught uh, in these ultra-quick edits? 
Uh, you know, we got a lot of like dragon stuff for Daenerys. We got a lot of basically like the entire episode of Hard Home slash past. <laughs> right. We got a lot of white, a lot of White Walker rules. Uh, but the new stuff all had to do with uh, Daenerys's father, the Mad King Aerys, uh, his wildfire plot, which which involved him planting caches of wildfire around uh, the city because he wanted to burn it all down, and uh, Jamie, uh, who was Kingsguard at the time, stabbing the Mad King in the back. And then sitting on the throne, which is where Ned found him when they, you know, finally broke into um, the throne room at the end of Robert's Rebellion. So now, do we think that was newly filmed footage or was it pre-existing footage that they just reappropriated? It was 100 percent newly filmed. Yes. Hmm. Very cool. But, no, I mean, the airy stuff was everything else was recycled. Right, yes. right, right. That's what. Yeah, I'm just talking about the airy stuff. Obviously, the Ares, yeah, the airy stuff and the wildfire was all newly filmed. Um, you can, you can tell just by looking, uh, I mean, it goes by fast, but, uh, Nikolai Costa Waldo looks like he looks now, not like how he looked in season one. Uh, but in the behind the scenes on HBO, it showed them filming it. So yeah. Gotcha. Uh, and we see all this stuff going on and then, uh, Bran and Mira are all of a sudden rescued by a mysterious man. Uh, wearing a mask over his face. And uh, this is actually a pretty cool scene. He had, I guess, mace grenades of fire. Uh, I don't really know how to describe his weaponry, but I thought, you know, the show has at times done a good job and a bad job of depicting people as badasses. Uh, And this was a case where I thought they did a pretty solid job here. Uh, What do you think? Yes, I loved it. I was so excited because I've been waiting for this character for a long time. And did you know who it was? (laughs) I did know who it was, Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was the return of Benjamin Stark, and what I loved, Joanna Robinson, is the fact that uh, HBO in the previously on episode did not show Benjamin at all. I know it was kind of like a response to how last season they showed Benjamin <laughs> in a previously on, and then it wasn't Benjamin, right? So yes. I, I almost felt like it was a double troll where they trolled you last time, and now this time <laughs> they don't show Benjamin on previously on, but he actually appears. Yeah, but I knew he was coming, so. I was excited to see him. Pretty good stuff. Uh, so they go and gather on the fire. And uh, Benjin says, like, you're the three-eyed raven now. Explains that he was almost killed by a White Walker, but he was rescued by the children of the forest. Yeah, what else do you make of this scene, Joanna? What, uh, what do you think we should take from this? His children found me. He stopped the walkers' magic from taking hold. How? The same way they made the walkers in the first place. You saw it yourself. Dragonglass. A shard of dragonglass plunged into your heart. You are the three-eyed raven, no? I didn't have time to learn. I can't control anything. You must learn to control it before the Night King comes. Drink. One way or another. He will find his way to the world of men. And when he does, you will be there waiting for him. And you will be ready. It's kind of crazy um, because George R. R. Martin has explicitly said this character is called Cold Hands in the books. And he actually sh- should have showed up, should have, quote unquote, should have showed up seasons ago to basically help Bran as soon as he got north of the wall. Um, and... 
So I've been waiting a couple seasons for him, and I'm really excited he's here. But George R. R. Martin has explicitly said he's not Benjamin Stark in the books. So this is another case of the show. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some people think George is lying, but I don't think so. I think this is just another case of the show combining, conveniently combining two characters, which is something that they like to do. Um, and that's, and I'm fine with it. I think it works completely fine in this case. So. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think far more interesting that it's a character we already know rather than some right. random dude, right? I agree. Yeah. It's emotionally satisfying. Uh, and, and as I think it was Dan Weiss said in the post-episode interview, having Uncle Benjamin there really emotionally grounds Bran. Like having this yeah. you know, father figure almost. Um, all these Starks are reuniting. It's so great. So yeah, another, another Stark back from the dead. Um, oh, yeah, so all the stuff about Benjen being brought back to life with a shard of dragon glass through his chest, like that's all new show invented stuff. I don't know what to make of it, but um, I think <laughs> I think Joseph Mall is great. I think his makeup looks creepy and cool, and I'm excited that he's back. It's so. good stuff, uh, and he foretells that he's going to help Bran out accomplish whatever his mission is, uh, which I guess is to become the Three Eyed Raven, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, just in, I don't know if all this behind the scenes stuff is boring, but Joseph Mall referred to him as the prof. The actor who plays Benjamin referred to him as the prophet, which I really love. Um, but yeah, that he is going to need these skills, these visions to help in the war to come. I guess. Yeah. So we cut to Arya, and uh, Arya is watching the play again. And man, they really did uh, a great job with this play, and. Uh, I'm actually quite surprised at how much of the play they're showing because, you know, it it doesn't really uh, serve the plot other than us being able to watch Arya experience these events through the play. You know what I mean? So it's just a character building thing. And uh, I felt like they really did a great job writing and executing it, uh, not just, uh, you know, the, the performances, but also like the little details, like how would you show some guy getting shot with an arrow or birds coming out of this thing, you know, like. They really went all the way, and I think it, it paid off big. What's also surprising to me is like how genuinely good uh, the actors are. Like it, it, it feels very authentic, you know. Um, I, I love this stuff. Yeah, I wish. I mean, I don't. I don't know if this is the last we'll see of them. I honestly don't. But I kind of wish it, it would never end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, want, I want them to do the entire series via these these plays. Yeah, yeah. I, it it feels like they wrote out a ton of it, and then they're just like, "This is so good. Let's just keep it all in the show." And uh, I, I do think it's great. You know, I, I have a great time. And if you like, it's like watching Shakespeare in the Park Westeros edition. Um, so great stuff. Uh, I I told. I told Dave that I wasn't going to talk about this, but I did talk to director Jack Bender tonight, <laughs> and I'll be posting that interview on Vanity Fair tomorrow, but I'll give you live listeners a little preview, which is that he told me they shot a lot more of the play stuff that's probably going to end up on the DVD. Awesome. So, um, that'll be really cool. Yeah, it's great stuff and uh, feels lovingly crafted, so really like that stuff. Uh, and this time uh, we see Joffrey uh, and Tywin get killed. Uh, and we get to observe Arya's reaction to it. And it was quite amusing to see Arya laugh at Joffrey dying and no one else in the audience reacts in the same way. Um, I, I had forgotten that Maisie Williams knew even how to smile. Like, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that's what it looks like. Yeah. Um, Probably because she was getting the crap beat out of her this entire season. Yeah. But, when's, when's the last time she smiled? Like when she showed up at the Eerie and cracked up 
when she found out that Liza had just died. That's <laughs> And that was like a really disturbing laugh. And I guess this is a disturbing smile, too, because she's like, yay, dead Joffrey. But we're all on the same page. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. And I'd actually forgotten that uh, everyone believes that Tyrion had killed Joffrey because it was a couple seasons ago when he had to reckon with those events. Uh, and he's kind of quite separated from all that stuff now, right? Like, it's been a long time since uh, someone has mentioned it even, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure Cersei's still dwelling on it. <laughs> in the back of her mind. She has bigger fish to fry at this point, but uh, so. somewhere in the deep recesses of her cold, blackened husk of a heart, she probably <laughs> still has it out for uh, Tyrion. So. I think you mean bigger birds to fry. Yeah, that's right. That's what you mean. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Arya decides to go in and poison the woman's uh, drink. Mm-hmm. And then she makes the classic mistake. Uh, she gets to know her mark. And they have a nice conversation. And, uh, you know, this actress uh, sees a lot of herself in Arya. And they have a little bonding moment. And then Arya flees. Uh, and then the woman's about to take the drink, and Arya intervenes and uh, shoves the drink out of her hand and accuses this other woman of wanting to kill her. Uh, and we'd seen that like she was this other woman, this other actress was mouthing the words right. uh, that the actress was making. So, uh, which, by the way, uh, having been in musical theater before, I just have to say, doesn't <laughs> mean that you want to kill that person. It just means maybe you've seen this play five hundred times already. And uh, you're kind of just, you know, reciting the lyrics to go along with it. Um, Dave, have you, have you been known to recite uh, other people's lines backstage at a uh, musical? I, I don't know if recite is the right word. I would say mouth. <laughs> okay. Mouth longingly is how I would describe it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so Arya, you know, does two things wrong. Number one, uh, she completely botches the assassination. And number two, she has the gall to put someone else uh on you know this woman like like put the blame on this other person so pretty rough and then we see that the waif is actually backstage observing everything no but i think she's right right don't we think Arya is right that it was the actress who hired the faceless men or do you disagree uh i don't think we have enough uh information to tell are, are the faceless men just like like you know guns for hire is that yeah. how it works okay yeah. so they can just kill Anyone who pays the money, pretty much. Uh, I don't know about anyone, but yeah, they're you know they're assassins for hire. Uh, you're not supposed to kill someone you know. I think is like the main rule. Um, right. But, so the idea that Arya would kill a Stark doesn't really make sense. Although, it would have well, been- I don't think she's going to be like a faceless man. Are you sure? Soon. <laughs> she didn't pass the training. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, you're right. It, it seems logical that that would be the only character. Are you sure it wasn't the guy with the warts on his penis? That uh, seems like a also strong contender as well. Could have been. Could have been. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's very likely it's this woman. Who knows if we'll even find out. It's, it feels like the end of that storyline anyway. Um, and Arya decides, hey, this is not for me. She can't forsake uh, what she knows and loves. And so she goes, finds Needle in the rock where she buried it. And the last we see of her, she's holed up somewhere and uh, trying to hide and stay alive. So, uh, Joanna, you've been pretty critical of this whole Arya storyline this entire season. Uh, What do you make of this most recent development, which I would assume would make you dismiss this plotline even more? Because it's kind of a thing where, hey, what were the last five episodes about? 
Well, I really loved the play stuff in yes. the last two episodes, and and especially all the work that Maisie Williams did in that backstage scene with Essie Davis, like talking about vengeance and people killing your family and how angry it makes you. Uh, then she says, "My dad is waiting for me," which is part of her lie and alibi, but also just feels like so Starkish uh, to me. And I'm really excited that it feels like the plot is ending. But I do have just have a really big question mark about if Arya is about to leave the House of Black and White, because she's no longer welcome there. Um, what was the point? Yeah, yeah. what was the point of all that? Let's say, I don't know this, but let's say she goes back to Westeros. That's what a lot of people are assuming. So let's say she goes back to Westeros. If she's not a faceless man, maybe she doesn't have the ability to change her face with anyone, right? So is she just like a really good at stick fighting now like what did she learn from um some people pointed out to me that that apparently now she knows a lot more about poison so maybe she's just like a great ninja assassin after all this but it does feel like a lot of runaround to it, me. It, it's also going to limit her effectuality the fact that uh the faceless men want to kill her i think uh or at least the waif does and uh, the waif is pretty badass i think we've seen so I don't know that Arya is long for this world. Like, do you think Arya is going to make it to the end of the season? I do. Yeah. Huh. I think Arya is very long for this world, but I don't know what's going to happen. Like, are the faceless men always going to be chasing her? I will if just say, lets- I, I don't have a strong prediction about whether she's going to be alive at the end of the season. I mean, this episode certainly sets it up that she's in big trouble. Mm-hmm. But I will say, if she doesn't survive to the end of the season, that will be incredibly disappointing, right? Yeah. I, I just can't imagine what in the next four episodes would make that whole thing worth it uh, she feels, if, she, if she dies at the end of it. She so. feels like a safe character to me. To me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so I guess we'll see what happens with Arya. And yeah, maybe she's learned some, she's learned some poison skills, some stick fighting skills, and she's going to use those at King's Landing, I guess. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, before we continue, though, John Robinson, I gotta ask you a question. Like, who in Westeros? Who who in the show do you think deals with the most mail? And I mean, like Raven mail. You know what I'm talking about? I gotta give it either to Varys or Littlefinger because they always have their finger on the pulse of what's happening. Yeah, I think so too. And, and maybe Master Kyber now. Uh, now that he's got all these kids who he's feeding candy to. Uh, <laughs> <But> that, that's <laughs> a, more like eyewitness reports. I think, you know, <laughs> I don't think they're sending ravens. They're not sending ravens? They don't have access to the ravens? Well, um, maybe. Cersei did ask him to send them, a, like, around the world. So maybe. Yeah, yeah. No, fair enough. Um, here's the thing, though. Dealing with tons of raven messages can be a huge nightmare. Uh, because you just have so many uh, messages incoming, and then you got to respond to some of them. And if you have a team you're working with, uh, you have like a bunch of people who can respond to them. And how do you assign them and uh, get them out the door and make sure your response rates are good? There's all these optimizations you can make. Uh, and fortunately, if you are in the situation where you're receiving tons of email, uh, there is a service that's going to help you guys. It's called HelpSpot, uh, and HelpSpot is actually free for the first three users and includes everything you need with no extra add-ons or hidden fees. HelpSpot is focused solely around giving you the email and self-service tools you need to efficiently manage your customer service. Its flexibility makes it a perfect fit 
for those new to help desk software, as well as those with established, more sophisticated help desks. Uh, this company has been around since 2004. It's been around for over a decade. Uh, and support teams from all over the country have used HelpSpot to effectively manage their customer support. So if you are listening to this show, Cast of Kings, right now, and you're thinking, hey, that sounds pretty good, uh, but can you get me a deal on this? Can you get me a deal on this amazing service that's going <laughs> to help me respond to a bunch of emails? Uh, my, my first answer to you is, man, are you presumptuous? But my <laughs> second answer is, yes, I can. Um, for Cast of Kings listeners only, start a trial today at helpspot.com slash kings and get 10% off forever when you purchase with the code kings. That's helpspot.com slash kings and get 10% off forever when you purchase using uh, the promo code kings. So that's a deal especially for Cast of Kings listeners. If you're dealing with a bunch of email and you want to figure out a way to manage it for your business or uh, just for yourself, helpspot.com slash kings. Thanks to Helpspot for sponsoring us this season. And I do think that uh, that Littlefinger and and uh, Kyburn could get the most use out of it. Although, like you said, Joanna, uh, it's probably a word of mouth situation with Maester Kyburn at this point. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's move on to the rest of the episode uh, and get to guess who's coming to dinner? <laughs> Westeros edition. <laughs> so Sam and Gilly they get to Hornhill. They arrive and meet uh, Sam's mom and sister, who are super nice. Uh, and they, uh, their dad is out hunting. You know, Gilly gets a makeover. They go to dinner, and uh, this is a pretty uncomfortable dinner, Joanna, uh, because we see tensions boil over uh, with regards to why Sam's dad sent him away in the first place, and then when they find out that she's a wildling, uh, things get even more tense. So what did you think of the scene, Joanna Robinson? Uh, I really loved it. I liked that the episode, I really actually liked that the episode just slowed down and gave us a big chunk of time with these characters. Um, Horn Hill was bigger than I imagined. It was very impressive. Um, and then I just love getting all the background into the Tarly family. Uh, I thought the the dinner scene was beautifully written and really well acted. And I have a sneaking suspicion that the only reason this whole sequence is there is to get that Valerian steel sword <laughs> in Sam's hand. But I think, uh, you know, that the show did such a good job getting us there. Like, I just think they made it worth it. They made it feel worth it, even though I can see that that's probably just why that happened at all. So this episode is written by one of my favorite people slash writers slash producers in the world, Brian Cogman. Uh, and while I liked many elements of this episode, uh, I wasn't super crazy about this scene just because it felt a bit cliche, a bit on the nose. Uh, you know, Gilly struggling with the knife and fork and then the, the crazy scene where he's like, wait, you're going down to the wall? It just it, we, We've seen that scene a thousand times before, you know what I mean? Where, oh, you inadvertently revealed this crucial piece of information that, ca- that catches you in a lie? Uh, it felt a little bit cliche to me, uh, but I agree with you that it looks great, and I love uh, the performance of the uh, the actor who plays Sam's dad. There's just so much hatred and contempt seething out of him. 
and it felt pretty plausible to me. You know, it felt like, hey, here's a dad who is lord of the manor, who's used to commanding uh, lots of people, getting his own way, and he's kind of a manly man. And when faced with his son, who's a huge disappointment, he would continue to, you know, take it out on him, even in the presence of others. Uh, it all felt very believable to me, other than that moment of, like, the reveal of, hey, you're not uh, who you say you are, you're a wildling. That stuff, I felt like, was kind of uh, is kind of a trope that's been played out. But uh, other than that, I so, did like the the low key sort of douchebaggery from uh, Sam's brother Dickon Tarly, uh, played by Freddie Stroma of Unreal Fame. Uh, I thought that was a great, just like low key shitty performance. The other thing we learned in the scene is that shitty performance meaning he was shitty or the performance no, was bad. He was great at being <laughs> a little shit. Um, the other thing we learned in the scene is how you know a reminder that white walkers are still a myth to most of right. the seven kingdoms. Yeah. And, you know, so it's flashback to season one and season two when people are like, white walkers, hilarious. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, so just that, that John and Davos and Sansa and the rest have a lot of work to do, propaganda work to do to get people to understand what's coming. So, yeah. Uh, and agreed that pretty much the whole function of the scene, I mean, we, he leaves the castle right afterwards. So I think the whole function of the scene is just to get uh, an explanation of what that sword is and then get it into Sam's hand as they, uh, as they yeah. leave. So. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Randall's Harley again because he's kind of a significant book character, but the rest might be one and done yeah. uh, in this episode. So, yeah. We go to King's Landing and uh, we see Tommen who is just – I, I think I've used this word to describe him before, but he is just completely hapless, it feels. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just getting bounced along by the waves. Uh, and there's a scene where he meets Marjorie and they reunite. And Marjorie seems to have completely converted Joanna Robinson. Mm, yeah. Um, completely earnest. Oh, yeah. And Tommen is so dumb, he doesn't realize he's being played by played his wife. so hard. <laughs> I will say that Marjorie does put a pretty convincing performance. She does not betray at all that she's just putting on an act. Oh, yeah. I mean, but this is this is where Marjorie lives. Yes. She is the master of deception. I think she is the best player of the game. Like, she and or her mom or grandma might be the best players in the game. <laughs> Eduardo Zubili- Zubiaga in the chat room says – calls him Dumbin. That's a pretty good uh, – Oh. Pretty good – Poor Kingdom and nickname yeah. for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, do we think there's any chance that Marjorie is being genuine in her conversion? Zero. Why negative you- negative ninety nine percent chance? Why do you think that's the case? I think contextually in the show, you see Natalie Dormer. I thought did a really good job when she's on the stairs of the Sept. And her dad and her grandma and Jamie show up with all the Terrell soldiers. And her face is very clearly like, damn it, I had this handled. (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) Like, I think it's so clear that she – and her plan is great. Like, she got Tommen away from Cersei. She got rid of Jamie. She consolidated her power base. Like, this is a really good plan of hers. Well, um, yeah, you you say she was frustrated at them showing up, but she wouldn't have gotten rid of Jamie if they hadn't shown up. Um, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Uh, 
Maybe she was just thinking five steps ahead, Joanna, but who knows? Maybe, maybe. maybe. Uh, another reason why I think it's not genuine is that in the previously on HBO, you see that scene of her and Loris and her saying, like, we can't give in. And then for her to just suddenly make that conversion, it would make no sense. Yeah. So the previously on HBO segments are really helping us tell the story of this episode. Uh, but anyway, uh, she d- has apparently converted, convinces Tommen to convert. And she's apparently about to do the walk of shame when uh, Jamie and Marjorie's dad, Mace, right? Mace Terrell shows up? Yeah. I read the best. Did you read that email about the nudity spoiler warning thing? Uh, tell us about it. All right. We got, I'm, I'm so sorry. I don't have it in front of me, so I don't know the person's name. But someone said that the fact that there was no nudity warning on the episode spoiled the episode for oh, him. snap! Because he knew then that there was going to be no walk of shame for Marjorie. Wow. And I, I was like, that is some close attention paying, uh, my friend. <laughs> so, Joanna, you, you, say, you say this, but I, I, you know, I've heard, uh, not from personal experience, that uh, certainly adolescent boys, let's say, often pay very close attention to those HBO warnings. I didn't know that. I mean, I don't know why that never occurred to me, but it really didn't. It never occurred to me. So, yeah. It might show you what you're in for. It might, it might show you, you know, whether, dare I say, it might show you whether an episode is worth watching or not. I'm just, I'm just speculating. Whether you should watch it with your parents or not. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, a, lot sure. of, a lot of crucial information in those TVMA uh, warnings. Uh, but, uh, yeah, like I had long stopped, you know, paying attention to those, but uh, that does, yeah, it does reveal that there is going to be no walk of shame. I do think this is another scene that suffered a little bit from being a bit too theatrical for my taste. Uh, Mm. when Jamie and, and Maestro show up and then, uh, like the high sparrow is like, Hey, she's going to do her atonement, but you know, like reversal, it's actually not going to be a walk of shame because Tommen has already converted over and it's because of Marjorie and everything's okay. And it's like, really? Would it, would it have played out that way? Like him positioning her like she's you know wearing the same thing with the septa next to her and then Tommen is just like waiting behind, waiting for his cue? Like for, for the high spirit to say, hey, come on out. Like he's not going to react or come out to react to any of this stuff going on in front with all these armies and stuff. You know what I'm saying? A friend of mine asked why no one thought to watch the king when they were about to stage a civil war in the capital. And I'm like, well, I guess if they thought he was so stupid, he didn't matter. Like, that's one thing. Yeah. But also, I mean, the big, the biggest, like, nit to pick in this, in this scene is the fact that the new king's guard that walk out with Tom and have new sigils on their breastplates that are the crown with the seven pointed star of the faith on it. Um, and, when did they have those breastplates made and how did they do it without any of the Lannisters or the Tyrells noticing? Like, I don't, I don't really understand. Really? That is the biggest nit and not Tommen just chilling in the sept while uh, this entire thing plays out before him. I mean, Tommen, I mean, if they wrote off Tommen as inconsequential, could you really blame them (laughs) given how Tommen has behaved? I I agree with you. This this scene was really theatrical, but I love the comedy beats of like Mace Terrell and his terrible plumed helm. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. Olena, like giving all the facial expressions. Jamie also just like giving Mace the business and like 
all of all of Jamie's faces. Like this is the most interesting thing by far Jamie has done all season. Not just because he rode like a horse up some stairs, but like just in terms which, of which having was pretty badass. We have to it say, was right? it was great. Yeah, but just in terms of having a personality, like this episode gave him so much personality. Um, the high sparrow stuff continues to kind of bore me, and that's no disrespect meant to Jonathan Price, but all of the stuff on the other side, all the. T- Terrell and Lannister stuff I found really entertaining in the scenes. I guess I was really looking forward to uh, this plot line, you know, from last week or a couple weeks ago when they set it up and uh, just Lady Olena saying, like, that will not be allowed to happen. I'm like, oh, man, I want I want angry Lady Olena, not, you know, Lady Olena sitting by fanning herself while this confrontation, you know, takes place and then ends anticlimactically. She wasn't Uh, fanning herself. She was giving the signal to, like, pull back we're done like she she uses her fan to signal mace and then mace signals the soldiers and then they step back so like she's just calling all the shots on the terrell army um and he's just the ridiculous figurehead uh but yes i agree that she that angry olena is the best olena well no i think like um sarcastic olena is the best no fair enough fair enough uh there are many there are many great olenas i I did not catch (laughs) the uh using the fan as a uh weapon of war so uh, thank you for pointing that out. Um, anyway, so what happens after uh, the the show seems to be fast forwarding through a ton of plot developments here? Uh, Jamie is sh- stripped of his Kingsguard position and sent to uh, Riverrun, right, to deal with uh, Blackfish Tully, who has yes. taken over it. Uh, yes, and this is kind of an interesting development because everything is converging on river run a location that i don't think we've seen this season no uh, and that uh, but like all groups are meeting at river run so at this point uh brienne is going to river run right mm-hmm. uh i think uh who, who do you call it uh well blackfish is already there mm-hmm. and then uh the phrase are going to river mm-hmm. run and then mm-hmm. jamie lannister is also going to river run right yes Yes. Uh, I don't think the Boltons are going to River Run, are they? No. Okay. Um, was not hundred percent sure about that, but anyway, everyone's heading to a River Run. Uh, I mean, how do you feel about things converging on River Run, Joanna? This is a book four plot, though I'm mm. excited to finally see it uh, brought forth. And I'll be interested to see how it plays out. But I love the Blackfish, and I even like Edmure Tully, who's Catelyn's useless brother, played by Tobias Menzies. Uh, so seeing him in this episode was was great. I love the return of Walter Frey. Yes. Are you kidding me? So David, good. David Bradley, so great. So, you know, the fact that we're getting some of these River Riverlands people, uh, I think is really fun. I, I like it. I need – and I, I'm like that Jamie's leaving King's Landing because I don't like him there. Now, last time he left, he went to Dorne. It was terrible. But I'm feeling confident that the Riverlands will be better. So, yeah. They do have a scene uh, between Cersei and Jamie where – uh, they kind of talk about what their plans are and have this kind of high-minded dialogue about taking what's theirs and no one matters except us. And part of it is actually kind of moving because these people have been through a lot together and they still love each other even though the relationship is messed up beyond belief. Uh, and the show almost made me forgot that these two are responsible for untold amounts of death and misery uh you know like that's when the show is at its best i feel like making you realize that these are uh full characters that are complicated and can make you feel something uh good and and move you but also they are capable of monstrosity 
What did you think of that scene? Apparently, Walter Frey can't manage it on his own because he's 400 years old. Sent me with an army to the Riverlands in a siege that could last months. Better you're elsewhere at the head of an army than in the Scepter Dungeons. I'm not going to the Riverlands. What then? I'm going to give Bronn the largest bag of gold anyone has ever seen. And have him gather the best killers he knows. I'll take them to the Sept and I'll remove the High Sparrow's head and every other sparrow head I can find. You can't. He has our son! He stole our son! He's torn our family apart. How should we treat people who tear us apart? We should treat them without mercy and we will. But if you kill the High Sparrow, you won't need the Sept alive and without you this is all for nothing. Stand at the head of our army where you belong. My father wanted you. Show our men where their loyalties belong. Show them what Lannisters are, what we do to our enemies. And take that stupid little castle back because it's ours and because you can. You'll stand trial soon. I need to be here for you. It will be a trial by combat. I have the mountain. I am sort of done with Cersei and Jamie. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um... I don't. Think- we we can't agree on anything. This is Joanna. I think is my take home. But continue. No, no. Sometimes we do. I just I think they're better with other scene partners. Like I'm excited that Brienne's headed to the Riverlands and Jamie's headed to the Riverlands because I thought he was better opposite Gwendolyn Christie, um, and I think Lena Headey is better opposite other people. I think when the two of them are together, um, yeah, I don't like it, and not just because of the incest. I could be down with incest, guys, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Oh, yeah, that was another thing I forgot to mention, that they are brother and sister and their relationship is incestual. That's also a little bit messed up. Sorry. Sorry I forgot to point that out. Anyway. Uh, well, speaking of – no, there's no way I can make a transition from that. We have some Kickstarter backers we've got to thank. Um, so at the beginning of every season, we put the hat out and ask people to support Cast of Kings. And a lot of you answered this year, and we really appreciate it. And we got to thank all the people that donated to our show. Joanna Robinson, you want to list some people. First and foremost, Tom Tectonic T-Money Clifford, Will Halley, Kurt Oschlager, Rachel Perez, Victoria Aria Snark Stout, Chris Petterick, and Alex mm, Zgolinski. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, Torgir Henriksen, Richard Lee, Danny Salil at God Xavier, um, Ewan Aitchison, yes, Andy Flynn, <laughs> Mark Isham, Lisa. I, I, I like how you pause and like decide. Yes, I did do it correctly. <laughs> uh, Lisa McCauley, John Camacho, Rick Russell, Nicholas Johansson, Gabby Schulte, Craig Smith, Melanie Stella. Brian McCabe, Wendy Packard, Alan Brim, Brandon mm, Monca. What? Monk. Oh, Kaz and Kalisa. Okay, Moncada. Moncada. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I that's, that was... how, that's how I would have done it without the pronunciation. Yeah, guys. some of these pronunciation guides are not super helpful. But, uh, Joanna, <laughs> I think that was pretty much a flawless victory uh, today uh, on your part. So, pretty good. Uh, here we go. Here are the people I'm thanking today. Khalil, David Roderick Johnson, Grant Piercy, Heather and Steve Yosero, Chuck Powell, Cheryl Nelson, Anna Colley, Amanda Major, Bridget Smo, 
Kimmy McGuire, Serafina Cobean, Caleb Nicholson, Devin Fuller, Josh Parham, Jim Scott, Joe Sokol, Charlotte and Ivy McConnell, Christopher E. from Saratoga, New York, Matt Hi-Z, Randy Phillip, Jeremy Lucas, Dylan Chuck, Peter Shern, Hisao Kushi, Jeremy Dizon, Aaron, and Davey McGeorge. Thanks to everyone for supporting A Cast of Kings. Thanks to all the Kickstarter backers. We really appreciate it, and you guys are awesome and uh, have kept the show going for many years. So thank you so much. Um, one last scene, Joanna, right, this episode? And uh, that is that... Uh, well, t- did we say everything we wanted to say about Walter Frey? I guess we did, right? Yeah, uh, it, it's interesting to see Edmure back into play. Like the previous Eon explained that Edmure was jailed after that uh, wedding to that beautiful woman in uh, season three. Right. He gave like David Bradley had the terrible job of recapping the Red Wedding and who the Tullys were and who the Freys were for the people who had forgotten from season three. And he did such a good job because he's so great at being creepy. And um, yeah, I loved that. And yeah, just wonderful, wonderful scene. Great return of a great, great slimy character. So. It's also cool that, you know, if this was a scene with Ramsey Bolton, one of those men who was defying him, a.k.a. one of his sons, probably would have ended up dead. But I, I kind of like the fact that Walter Frey takes family really seriously. And so no matter how pissed off he gets, he's not going to actually, you know, kill someone who's insulin or anything like that. That was just my extrapolation from that scene. I don't know if you felt that at all. It, yeah. it just felt like things were getting pretty tense uh, at that dining room table. You've lost it. Yes, Father. It's a castle, not a bloody sheep. Presumably you still know where it is. You didn't lose River Run. You let the Blackfish take it from you. He surprised us. He knows the castle better than anyone. You did lose the Blackfish after the Red Wedding. You had him right here in this hall. And you let him leave. And when I told you to hunt him down and kill him, you couldn't find him. That's what it means to lose something. Now he's come back and taken River Run. I don't think it's fair to blame us. Three hundred years. We kissed Tully boots, swore oaths to them, and their stinking fish banners. Not again. River Run is ours. As someone in the chat room, Dr. Zero One D eight zero points out that this proves that Littlefinger was not lying to Sansa about what her uncle was doing at River Run, which was a question last week, right? Right. Well, the the thing that we wanted to know was not whether he's lying about that, but whether or not uh, he was lying about not knowing that Ramsay was a monster. Oh, I thought it was both. But um, yeah, we still don't know about the Ramsay thing. But I think some people were wondering whether or not he was making up the whole Blackfish thing entirely. Giant Shoes in the chat room says his wife seems so distraught and confused, referring to Walter Frey's wife. And yeah, she did seem quite put upon, don't you think, Joanna? The like little girl? Yeah, she seems like actively in distress at all times. Uh, Would you not be if you were a little girl? It felt very upsetting. (laughs) It was very yeah. upsetting to watch that. Yeah. Um, so. He's gross. He's so gross. <laughs> but he's gross in a way you can enjoy it, as opposed to Ramsey, who I think gets very tiresome. He's gross in like the old Joffrey way of like you – he's so disgusting and you kind of love watching him be gross and you're pretty sure he's going to die probably and it's going to be fun. Yeah, it would be great if he died horribly. I'm yeah. looking forward to that. But uh, Game of Thrones, I don't know, has consistently denied us satisfying deaths of people we hate. 
right? Would we say is that is that a fair statement? What do you think of that? Not consistently. Uh, Joffrey died. Tywin, who was kind of evil, died. Like, hold on, hold on. No, no, no. I'm not saying that no one we wanted to see die dies. Uh, oh, sorry. What I, do you think? I'm saying like it, it deprives us of feeling that much satisfaction at their deaths. Like with the Joffrey death, he gets poisoned. He doesn't get killed by Arya, oh. and when he dies, you feel kind of bad for him. You feel bad for him, Joanna. <laughs> you know, like his mom is there watching you him die, and yeah. you realize he's just a kid. You know, it's not satisfying at all. I was pretty satisfied. I remember now that you really wanted like Arya to kill him or something. But yeah, I was but pretty, you, I was pretty satisfied by the whole thing. All right, all right. Well, agree to disagree on that one. <laughs> agree to disagree. <laughs> what about Ollie? I am not going to dignify that with a response. <laughs> so let's just pretend you didn't say it and move on. Okay. <laughs> Daenerys Targaryen. Riding through the desert, as we've seen her for so much of this show, uh, and hanging out with Dario, and this is another scene. Again, some great moments in this episode, all right? Brian Cogman, I don't think you're listening to this, but if you are, you're one of my heroes, uh, but was not a huge fan of this scene. A lot no. of it felt really on the nose, and in particular, uh, the idea that she's like, how many, how many ships would it take me to get what? to... Dario, just a quick math. Exactly how many ships do I need? Just exactly how many? Also, uh, oh, uh, oh, a thousand? I wonder if anyone's mentioned having a thousand ships recently. <laughs> it's pretty rough. Not to mention that, as far as uh, we know, she doesn't know about all the burned ships at Marine yet, does she? Uh, not unless someone sent a raven. Right, so it's her. like, you know, why is she reflecting on ships, you know? As far as, as, far as she knows, she's got a ton of ships already, so... Anyway, it, it it felt really weird. And then she's like, hey, uh, chill right here. I'm going to go get my dragon. Like, what? <laughs> you know? Wh- yeah. What did you think of this scene, Joanna? Uh, I mean, all the Danny stuff has been really bumming me out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I do like um, – well, I did like that her eventual speech – well, first of all, I thought I thought the CGI on Drogon was considerably better than the CGI on the dragons we saw earlier this season. Um, and I thought I liked that her speech was almost like word for word the same the one that uh, as Cal Drogo yeah. gave in season one after uh, the assassination attempt on Daenerys, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was a nice callback. Um, and I like that we're supposed to be kind of like Dario is giving her a look like what the fuck, like he's kind of scared of her, and I think we should all be kind of scared of her. Uh, so I did like that, but that would be the only like if Daenerys really is sort of skewing. Not evil, but like um, in a conqueror in a way that's harder to root for. I think that's the most interesting thing that could hap- happen to her. And uh, it it might make the fact that we've seen her just give another speech yet again maybe worthwhile. <laughs> so many speeches. Yeah. Uh, Giant Shoes in the chat room points out that her speech was like Drogo from season one without all the rape stuff. Which I think is correct. She, she did leave out the part where she's going to rape the women and murder the children. Yes. She did leave that phrasing out. Um, but the whole, like, uh, wooden horses, stone houses, men in their iron suits, all of that before the mother of mountains. Like, she's using these Dothraki phrases specifically to stir up their blood. Um, but... Um, as opposed to other speeches she's given in the show, this one had nothing to do with like freeing anyone. It's just about taking, 
taking and taking and conquering. So, you know, maybe that's her future is that she is kind of a ruthless conqueror. And like, you know, I wrote about this on Vanity Fair, but like when she gets to Westeros to conquer, uh, she might be clashing with some characters that we like. So it's going to be interesting. I do wish we had a little bit more understanding of her relationship to Drogon. Like, what, what was, where was he the whole time? You know what I mean? <laughs> Why didn't he just show up earlier and save her from this uh, via Stothrak situation? Like, can she just call upon? Was she, you know, like, what, what's going on there? Do you have any idea? I'm 85% certain <laughs> that, uh, you know, we don't know what happens in the books, but I'm 85% certain that in the books, like, there's not going to be that whole thing where she burns down a hut. Like, I think it's just going to be the Dothraki see her dragon and they bow down to her. Uh, I'm pretty sure that that's what was going to happen. And the show decided to do it a little differently, spread it out a little. Um, she does have a psychic connection to the dragons. We've seen this before. Like, um, that time when he came at night on the roof uh, in Marine and also in the fighting pits, like... Drogon shows up in the fighting pits because of the blood and the sounds and all of that. But also I think there is some indication that she has something of a psychic link with her dragons. Yeah. I guess low, low level psychic link. <laughs> that only works sometimes. Right, right. Because uh, <laughs> presumably she was in distress earlier uh, and could have called upon Drogon then. But whatevs, uh, you know, she has them now and it's all good and we'll see where that goes. Question for you. Do you think we're going to see uh, Euron Greyjoy build a thousand ships before the end of the season? I mean, if he did, he used the same, like, people who made those breastplates in a day at King's Landing. <laughs> wow, that really bothers you, huh, Joanna? <laughs> or, like, how quickly Sansa made her dress. Maybe Sansa can make the sails, and whoever made the breastplates can make the ships, and he'll have a thousand ships before the end of the season. If Euron Greyjoy has a thousand ships before the end of the season, like, I, come on. Come on, guys. I don't know. Indeed. So what do we think of this episode overall, Joanna? Mixed. Yeah. <laughs> right? Mixed. I love the Benjamin Brand stuff. I liked the Sam and Gilly stuff. I love the Walter Frey stuff. Uh, Sparrow stuff is a little boring. And the Danny stuff is not my cup of tea. So, yeah. I think that pretty much mirrors my thoughts on things. Uh, I'll be curious to see how they're going to pay off the Danny stuff and the Arya stuff. Because those, to me feel like the plot lines that are most in danger of losing my interest completely right now. So uh, so we'll see where those go. And I mean, it's it's kind of felt weird to have a, an episode without John or Sansa. Like, it feels like they feel like essential characters to check in with every week now. Um, and, you know, yeah. that's not, uh, al- not always been the case on Game of Thrones that you felt like you needed to see characters. But I think because two Starks are together and they're largely working towards a goal that we can believe in, like, we want that plot. That plot makes us feel good. You know? So they are in the process of rallying the remaining potentially loyal people to the Starks, correct? Right, right. So, yeah. uh, And reuniting against Winterfell. So we'll see how that goes maybe next week. Uh, in the meantime, John Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Uh, you can find me on VanityFair.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. Find me at DaveChen.me on Twitter at DaveChensky. That's DaveChensky. Thanks for tuning in to A Cast of Kings this week. Sorry we're uh, a bit late. That's completely my fault. Blame me in your angry emails and not Joanna. And uh, I think we'll be back to our regularly scheduled timing uh, next week. So see you then on A Cast of Kings.